When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The Hungarian Marxist philosopher George Lukács has long occupied a complicated place in the Marxist canon of thinkers. Both his lived and theoretical practice subject to much critical commentary and debate. While history and class consciousness is considered to be a classic of critical sociology, it has also often been held at arm's length by Marxists many of whom find its use of Hegelian speculative philosophy unhelpful, while others find the overemphasis on praxis at the expense of other forms of life and inquiry reductive. In spite of these hesitations, the text has maintained a canonical status for a century now, leaving philosophers on the left with a difficult set of questions about how to read it and what to do with it. Stepping into this difficult terrain is Daniel Andre Lopez, with his massive book, Lukács, Praxis and the Absolute. Lopez's work reconstructs Lukács' thought of the 1920s by putting it back into its tumultuous context, allowing us not only to get a close look at the theory, but its purpose in maintaining political, historical, and philosophical clarity in a world filled with war, revolution, and upheaval. Much like our current moment, Lukács occupied a time where everything seemed possible, but translating the infinite possibilities into concrete realities was a formidable challenge and would require not only the courage to step into physical danger, but also political confusion. Nothing in this moment was guaranteed, so rigorous philosophical speculation was required, and Lukács stepped in to provide communists with a rigorous theoretical framework. However, this book goes well beyond simply reconstructing Lukács' theoretical output, Rather than be satisfied with writing a straightforward commentary, this book is interested in wrestling with Lukács' successes and his limitations. To that effect, Lopez works through a number of critiques of Lukács, both of others as well as his own. This allows him to explore various other questions on the margins of Lukács' work about the relation between philosophical theory and political practice, and the role of critical thinking in emancipatory movements. The scope and rigor of the text, as well as the various questions and themes it addresses, will make this an incredible resource, not just for newcomers to Lukács or those seasoned in his thought, but for all those interested in learning how to think and how to translate that thinking into action. Daniel Andre Lopez is an honorary research associate with the Thesis 11 Forum for Social and Political Theory. His work has appeared in a number of places, including the journal Historical Materialism. He is also an editor at Jacobin. 
Daniel Lopez, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Stephen. Nice to be here. Yeah, so I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning of episodes. So could you maybe tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what your work and research tends to focus on? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm Daniel Lopez. I live in Melbourne, Australia. Um, At the moment, I'm working as a contributing editor for Jacobin magazine. Um, So that just involves commissioning content about Australia and and other things as well. Um, In terms of philosophy, I did my, I completed my PhD in 2018. um, And my book came out in 2019. Um, I teach in philosophy still. Uh, At the moment, uh, I'm focusing on the question of speculative Marxism. And I'm particularly interested in Gillian Rose. Wonderful. So to kick things off, um, I want to kind of set the scene for why you decided to write this book. Um, You've said that you feel that Marxism overall as a a political or philosophical orientation is somewhat incomplete, that for all its rigor at helping us think about things like history, society, economics, there are certain blind spots or limitations to it that need to be supplemented. And for you, Hegel is really the person who mm. Marxists need to pay attention to, to help give them some extra theoretical help. Can you maybe explain what you think the theoretical limitations of Marxism are and what you think Hegel has to offer? Yeah, true. Look, it's a, it's a big question, but I guess the way that I got into this uh, when I was first conceiving of the book, um, well, if you look around at the various Marxist movements or socialist movements around the world, we're a very, very fragmented movement. Um, and we haven't really had a lot of success in the last couple of decades. You know, there can be there have been movements that have made big change or that, that have inspired people, but Marxism, although it has a logic within it that claims to be totalizing, that claims to understand society as a whole, the logic of history, et cetera, um, Marxism itself is intellectually extremely divided, politically quite divided between different traditions that cut, go back to the 20th century. Um, to my mind, that's evidence of an organic crisis within Marxism as a movement and as an intellectual movement. Um, now, to my mind, this isn't a reason to just leave Marxism behind, but it's a reason to start to think through the traditions and the remains that we've got from the 20th century to say that no one of these traditions is the one truth. Um, no one of these traditions can claim to be the correct understanding of Marxism or the correct way to change the world, you name it. Um, but they all have something different uh, to offer us. But then on a deeper level than that, in a sense, there are some quite real and tangible failures um, associated with different types or currents within Marxism. Uh, we can't point to one of the major currents, you know, I mean, social democracy, Bolshevism, Trotskyism, Maoism, you know, you name, you name it. We can't really point to one um, that didn't on some level enter into a crisis uh, in the late 20th century or the early 21st century. So I guess one of my arguments in the book is that that shows you something about historical logic to, to Marxism um, as an intellectual movement and to the, the actually the logic of the left as a culture within modernity. So part of the problem, I think, is that Marxism or Marxists haven't typically developed concepts that can allow us to reflect upon the concepts that we use to understand the world. You know, we have many, many concepts with which to understand the world, you know, go and read Capital, the Commodity, you know, use value, exchange value, you name it, or read German ideology, um, logic of history, or you read Lukács, reification, etc. So there's this very rich conceptual apparatus. And, you know, this this extends into people like Gramsci or Althusser or, or later Marxists than that. Um, but within that, we haven't particularly developed a self-reflexivity about those concepts um, and an overview that would allow us to understand how they function within different systems of thinking. 
Um, so I think speculative philosophy or Hegelian philosophy gives us an opportunity for that. Yeah, there are deeper reasons, I think, why perhaps Marxism needs Hegel, but I think maybe that'll come out imminently um, because part of what I was arguing is that the limits to Lukács' efforts disclose the need for a philosophical standpoint within Marxism that we can then use to think through the way we see the world. Yeah, jumping right off of that. Um, so this book is focused on Lukács um, and his attempts to kind of develop a more Hegelian Marxism. Uh, and to that effect, you're really focused mostly on his work in the 1920s uh, in most uh, exclude almost the main text there is, of course, his most famous text, History and Class Consciousness. Um, we're going to kind of tease out the theoretical developments he would make as time goes on, but I'm wondering if you could just kind of give us a sense of the basic project of helping um, left parties develop a more self-conscious uh, orientation. And and also the way, Luka- for Lukács, self-consciousness required Hegelian dialectics. Could you maybe give us an introductory sense of that project of using dialectics to develop this kind of more historical consciousness and self-reflexivity, as you were just talking about? Yeah. Well, like it's a, it's a good question, because a lot of the uh, commentators on Lukács, and particularly the academic ones, they forget that during the 1920s, he was a very active and involved uh, member of the communist movement. He was a leader in exile of the Hungarian Communist Party. Um, he wrote in German, and he wrote in the communist press. So this is a guy that was participating in these struggles and in these movements. Um, so to read history and class consciousness or any of his other texts from the twenties as purely philosophically, or purely phil- philosophy, that's it. Mistakes the motivation behind them. It mistakes what he was trying to do. Um, when he converted to communism, um, he really put politics at the forefront. So this isn't to say that he, you know, ignored other spheres of life completely. You know, culture, philosophy, you know, what have you. But he said we need to focus on the political moment. We need to affect a political transformation throughout Europe. Um, and ultimately this for him looked like trying to reproduce the Russian revolution, but in different concrete circumstances. So in a sense, there's something quite similar going on in, in Lukács to what was going on in Gramsci in Italy. You know, they both understood that to make the politics of the Russian revolution efficacious elsewhere, they needed to develop a Marxism within local communist parties that could grasp the, the actuality of their moment in the same degree of concrete detail that, the Lenin's party did in Russia, um, and that had the politics and the clarity uh, to lead uh, transformative social struggles and revolution um, on the basis of that. So this was also a very practical question in the 1920s, and this sort of does get towards the role of philosophy. Um, if you th- The communist internationals having all sorts of debates in the early 1920s, you know, there's sort of ultra-leftists on one side, there's people that are um, to the right on another side, um, you know, there's all these questions about different countries, about Germany, the German Revolution, you know, you name it. Um, I guess Lukács' overall point, or the point of reading him, is to say that, well, within these different debates, there's no, there was no clear-cut methodology within, within the Marxist side. Um, so Lukács did take particular positions on different issues, that's fine, and of course, you know, all of the different leaders would have done. Um, but insofar as they were articulating strategies for different national contexts, they were doing so in a way that wasn't particularly reflexive and that was still to some extent dominated by, um, I guess, ideology um, that in some way relates to the way that the bourgeois society functions. You know, to give you a concrete example um, of what that means, like he he reviewed um, Nikolai Bakharin's book on historical materialism, which came out in the early 20s, and sort of makes an argument on the basis of that, uh, that 
well, Bakaran's reproducing a methodology, a kind of an empiricist methodology that is inherited uncritically from, from bourgeois social science, and that this fails to see the transformative role um, that the working class can play um, in social struggle. So, yeah, for Lukács in the early 20s, turning to philosophy is a way to gain freedom and clarity vis-a-vis strategic debates in the communist movement. Philosophy is not the point. It's something that, um, that Marxists have to go through for him in order to be able to think critically and clearly about the concepts that they use in articulating strategy and leading struggle. Yeah, turning to one of those kind of methodological tools, um, one thing that features strongly for you is what you call Lukács' literary historical method. Um, To this extent, you quote Lukács, uh, who gives a short summary of it. He writes, quote, To ensure that the problems under consideration will arise before us dialectically, Lenin and Luxembourg provide what is substantially a literary historical account of their genesis. They analyze the changes and reversals in the views leading up to the problem as it presents itself to them. They focus on every stage of intellectual clarification or confusion and place it within within a historical context, conditioning it and resulting from it. This enables them to evoke with unparalleled vividness the historical process of which their own approach and their own solutions are the culminations. So can you maybe unpack this approach or method Lukács has and also maybe how it informs your own reading of Lukács? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the reason why, maybe I'll start with my own reading and then and then Lukács' method will emerge from that. The reason why I seized upon this method is because of a commitment to imminence. So it, it frustrates me when you come across, um, you know, scholarly work on on different philosophers or you know, other work for that matter, which is sort of eclectic or just picks and chooses or introduces a standpoint totally external to those authors in order to assess them. I mean, there can be fine things done that way, but I wanted to find a method within Lukács with which to assess his work and to push his work beyond its own limits. So I see that as a, an aspect of a, a, a fairly Hegelian or, or speculative approach to criticism. So the point of the logical historical or the literary historical method, um, I'll mention how it relates to logic in a second, for Lukács, is that it allows us to understand a the text that we're looking at or the thinker that we're looking at or perhaps a movement that we're looking at, both in its totality, um, so its interior logical or literary totality, um, and I sort of see that as practicing a fidelity to the text. You know, we have to pay very close attention to what these people said. We have to try and grasp their ideas as a whole, including where those ideas are contradictory. Um, we have to try and show how the different elements or the aporias even of a text relate to the whole structure. Um, but then in addition to that, we have to situate it within history. Now, this doesn't just mean, you know, having a, a section at the beginning saying, oh, this is where this guy fits into history. Um, what Lukács means by history in this context he uses the term later on in history and class consciousness, genesis, to distinguish between history in a typical sense and history understood in a dialectical sense. Um, genesis is the conceptuality of the content of history understood. So in my argument, the conceptuality of history that Lukács' work expresses is the October Revolution. And that tells us something about the moment of revolution in social transformation, um, class consciousness, the role of the party, so on and so forth. So I've tried to unite both a literary approach to practicing a fidelity to the text, assembling Lukács' work as a totality from the 20s at any rate. Um, And I've tried to explain how that relates to the conceptuality of his time and how those two things, in my mind, um, create a tension within which the author can enter into a dialogue with the text. So 
I think that's an important step to acknowledge because otherwise we sort of fetishize or reify the text itself and presuppose that there's some absolute truth within the text. We have to acknowledge the difference between ourselves and the text. But at the same time, we have to do that without, um, I guess, retreating into the the relativism or the um, eclecticism of simply proposing our own ideas in in an open discussion with the text. You know, rather what I wanted to do is to say, um, insofar as I'm going to criticise the guy, I'm going to try and find bases within his theory, within his philosophy, um, to criticise him. And the point there being, insofar as we can disclose contradictions or aporias um, or lacunae within Lukács' theory, they reveal a certain truth about historical reality that he was involved in that may well be uh, a truth that, that is relevant for us today. So I guess in the gaps of the text, history starts to speak. Um, that's part of, that's sort of how I see that method. I guess there's one or two other aspects to this method that I think are important. Like the, the point about reading a system as a totality matters a lot, um, as, a, as a logical totality. This doesn't mean just establishing a, when I began the project, I sort of had a tendency towards establishing Lukashian Marxism or his philosophy practices as like a perfect integral whole without flaws. And that just ends up in a very schematic direction. You know, you can always find ways to defend um, a theory like that, um, but it just ends up removing it further and further from reality. But at the same time, by, by reproducing uh, Lukash's uh, thinking as a system, and he does actually say in the introduction that there is a system systematicity to his ideas in history and class consciousness. Um, by doing that, I think we can start to see some of the interior logical structure. And then the big point I'd make there, it's the last one I make, is the key contradiction in, in Lukács' philosophy praxis as a whole, for me, is the contradiction between theory and philosophy. Um, he wants to overcome philosophy, whereas I think his achievement is having created something that is in itself philosophical or implicitly philosophical. Yeah, jumping right off of that, um, to start kind of reconstructing Lukács' work in the 1920s, I think it's worth, uh, as you say, kind of being attentive to historical context, especially uh given what was going on at the time. This was a Europe that had just gone through a world war. Uh, there was the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. There was the attempted German revolution um, and just massive other issues, you know, in the wake of this massively destructive war that had, you know, devastated economies and societies. Um, and within that, um, as you say, Lukács is really kind of a frontline organizer. He's not a philosopher outside of it. He's really trying to understand how to operate within this space that is constantly upheaving itself. Um, can you maybe just set the scene a bit uh, so that we can better understand and appreciate the situation Lukács was trying to philosophize about and uh, understand? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the October Revolution has happened in 1917, and that was a, a lightning bolt throughout all of Europe. And that, was, um, that impacted hugely on Lukács. Before that, Lukács was a very unhappy man. Um, you might call him an existentialist, and that coin wasn't particularly in, in circulate. That term wasn't particularly in circulation um, back then. But you know, he he was very interested in Neo-Kantian philosophy. Um, you know, he his focus was aesthetics, was literature, um, and you know, in a lot of ways, I think he exemplified the cultural crisis um, and the intellectual crisis that Europe was going through. Mikhail Lowy's book on on Lukash has a very very good discussion of this um, intellectual milieu. Um, that Lukács was part of, many of whom went to the radical left, some of whom went to the to the radical right, uh, in fact. So the October Revolution happens, but then 
you know, later on it's echoed in Hungary um, in the Hungarian Soviet Republic. And Lukács has joined the Communist Party, the Hungarian Communist Party just before that. Um, and so very quickly, he's giving lectures to, to hundreds and hundreds of workers as part of a revolution. He becomes a deputy commissar for culture um, in a very short-lived Hungarian Soviet Republic. He, um, he fights in the Hungarian Civil War. Um, he even organises underground briefly um, within Hungary, despite the fact that he was quite well-known and, and that was a huge risk to him, um, before he goes into exile and um, is involved with organising the Hungarian Communist Party in exile. So the big challenge here is to try and replicate the Russian Revolution in other countries um, to lead to a victory of workers' power. And, and what Lukash means by that as well is, um, and people miss this, he's got a very radically democratic approach towards, towards communism. This guy wants the Soviets to rule. He wants workers' councils to rule. Um, you know, it's a radical democratic political form that he wants to rule. And his account of the party, which we'll talk about in a second, um, he's got a very democratic account of the party. So, you know, these are the kinds of things he's trying to work through. In a way as well, he's quite new to Marxism. You know, he'd already read some Marx, you know, in the 1910s um, during the war. Um, but, you know, when he becomes a communist, he's he's got a real ultra-left or, or messianic flavour about it. So he does take a number of years to work through Marxism as a body of thought and um, in combination with Hegelian philosophy. Um, and so I guess his audience then is the intellectual leadership of the communist movement um, following World War I. He also writes like a, you know, many, many journalistic articles, most of which haven't been translated um, and republished. So, you know, again, this guy isn't just pitching to the philosophers in the party, he's pitching to everyone really. And you know, he's involved in a lot of practical work. I'll give you one example of why that mattered for developing his ideas. So I mentioned he began his political career as something of an ultra-left or, you know, um, messianic or whatever you'd want to call it. Um, but at one point in the Hungarian Communist Party in exile, there was a debate between uh, Lukács and um, his ally, Jeno Landler. And then on the other side, there was Bela Kuhn, who was the, I guess, Comintern-approved um, Hungarian Communist Party leader. And Bela Kuhn wanted to introduce a requirement that um, effectively that uh, Communist Party members must not pay dues to social, the Social Democratic um, Controlled Union. That's in Hungary. Now, this was, you know, Bela Kuhn could justify this on all sorts of ultra-radical bases, you know, the Social Democrats you know, a large part of them in Germany backed the war, you know, in, in Hungary, they were inconsistent opponents um, of the dictatorship, you name it, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there's a moral argument for this, but Lukács looks at this and he's horrified saying, if Hungarian workers have to do this, they'll effectively be outing themselves as communists in a dictatorial regime. Um, it's a kind of moralistic ultra-left stand. So Lukács sees that and because of the exigencies of organising on the ground, he says, this is crazy, we cannot do this. Um, so he develops a much more mediated and concrete approach towards revolutionary politics that doesn't rest on abstracting junctions but tries to grasp the situation for what it is and find a pathway within that um, to developing a class-conscious workers' movement. Yeah, to start kind of reconstructing a theory a bit, um, one place I think it might be helpful to start is what you call, um, you've got a couple terms that come up. For one, the quantitative immediacy of capitalism, as well as the common sense empiricism. And at times, uh, this is... Uh, a critique of kind of bourgeois economics and the sort of apologetics that can come along with that. But it also seems to be for Lukács, uh, kind of a way, a starting point for a lot of people living under capitalism, that it has this sort of 
appearance that can be very seductive and appealing and hard to break. Um, but it's really important for Lukács to kind of understand where people are at um, politically, consciously, etc. Can you maybe uh, unpack this starting point for uh, people living mm. under capitalism, this kind of everyday conscious orientation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's different, there are different terms going on around here. I guess the broad concept that we're talking about is reification, um, which is a specific type of alienation for Lukov. Oh. Reification is the type of alienation endemic to capitalist societies. So market-based um, commodity producing and exchanging societies, you know, that use money, you name it. And a lot of his ideas about reification, I think the biggest influence is George Simmel, who was a neo-Kantian sociologist who's, who's great. You know, people should read him. Um, but effectively, the issue with reification is that we produce our means of subsistence in estrangement from each other. This was true under feudalism as well, you know, well, to some extent. Um, it varies. But under capitalism, you know, you do it for a wage. You go to work and your labour time, you know, whatever the concrete thing that you're doing is, is measured quantitatively according to time, not according to the thing that you've produced, not according to the human relationships that you have with um, workmates or with whoever is employing you. Um, it's measured according to time. So this is like Marxist political economy, right? But this means that we, you know, Lukash doesn't really do the political economy. He sort of says, oh, well, Marx has already done this. Rosa Luxemburg's done this. You know, that's fine. Um, he's more interested in, in the cultural questions or the questions of consciousness. So this creates a society in which we instinctively relate to everything and everyone on, first and foremost, on a quantitative level. You know, how much does this cost? Um, it's reminiscent of, of early Marx, you know, where he sort of argues that any any quality, any human quality like um, intelligence, strength, beauty, whatever, whatever, can be bought because they're embodied in commodities. Um, so this is the this is the immediacy of how we relate to society as a whole. Um, you go down to the shops, you go to work, you get money, and you treat. And this gives rise to you know this isn't purely an economic thing either. This gives rise to to political and cultural forms. Um, the political equivalent of the commodity is um, the citizen, the individual abstract unit um, that makes up a polity and that has is the bearer of rights. So a citizen is not a concrete person, you know, doesn't say anything about their life, their human connections, you know, who they are, what they think or anything like that. It's just a simple unit, a simple abstraction, you know, in the same way as a dollar is, is a simple abstraction. Um, or, for example, with the legal system, you know, Lukash, he does pinch this argument from Max Weber, really. Um, you know, the legal system under capitalism is built effectively as a quantitatively calculable and rational bureaucracy. So this doesn't mean it's genuinely rational. Um, you know, we're on the left, we know that. But it does mean that courts basically have to provide a relatively predictable um, and objective and abstractly universal framework within which to arbitrate disputes, to, to deal with crime, etc., this is necessary for the functioning of the market. It's so you can make an investment and you can predict that your property will be secure, that the act, that you'll be able to sell and, you know, you won't get ripped off, um, so on and so forth. So this creates, I guess, the standard orientation of a capitalist society is a kind of liberal empiricist rationalism because it's all built, because it's built on a system of, of atomized individuals who relate to the world abstractly and universally and this is very different from other social systems you know if you think about feudalism feudalism is not like that in the least like feudal, you know it's 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 radical to be a rationalist against feudalism um now the other issue with this this picture um that lukash paints 
is that if you think about it, where does reification come from or where do these social forms come from? They're human practices, they're social relationships. But because they systematically, capitalism systematically isolates each individual from other individuals, you know, the, the sort of the common Marxist points, like, you know, you'll go down to the supermarket and you'll be confronted by hundreds and hundreds of different commodities who have all, that have been made by workers everywhere. And you, all of these relationships are just invisible. They're all just concealed behind transactions. Or even when you go to work, you know, half the time you, you might not meet other people that you're working with, or you won't know people that work for the same company across the, across the country. Um, so because capitalism isolates us from each other and effectively operates on the basis of social relationships that have been established in the past that seem impermeable, it starts to feel natural. It starts to feel, well, this is just the way things are. This is the way things have always been. On some level, perhaps it's an expression of our human nature or you know, some eternal fact about, about societies. And so we're confronted in society by accumulations of facts. Things just go out and you look at some facts and they seem to be objective. They seem to be the truth. In fact, facts are really just accretions of past practice. Um, some facts are better than others. You know, Lukash is not, he's often characterized as someone who just wants to liquidate all facts into, into faith, which is, eh, there's a grain of truth to that, but it's really, the guy did actually have an attention to facts. Um, but the problem with this is, who chooses the facts and who has created the facts? This would be Lukash's question. Um, you know, like there's all sorts of common examples of this. Like, for example, when you look at unemployment statistics, they're almost always um, like massively, massively underestimated um, or they conceal things like, you know, underemployment. Um, or when you look at, you know, breakdowns of wealth, sure, they might portray inequality, but they don't particularly portray who owns capital in a given society. So these kinds of common sense, immediate facts, um, I guess they're the bread and butter of, of uh, different forms of politics, which on some level cohabitate with capitalism, you know, from conservatism to liberalism to social democracy, you name it. Yeah, I want to jump right off of that. Um, so you've been talking about kind of this uh, alienating aspect of capitalism, this reified uh, subject. Um, so kind of to develop this a little more. So for Marx, uh, commodities had both this quantitative and qualitative character. Uh, and Lukács is tracking this way in which subjects under capitalism also have it. Um, and you've been saying this is kind of a source for alienation. But at the same time for Lukács, it's there's kind of two sides to this coin where this is also a possible source of emancipa emancipation or at least emancipatory thinking, kind of people starting to think more critically about their situation. Um, and even if it doesn't immediately just turn into a revolution right away, it is kind of the starting point for Lukács of, you know, workers maybe thinking more critically about how to organize and what sort of society they would want to occupy. Can you kind of speak to this dual aspect of it or this ambivalence or mm -hmm. fork in the road? Yeah. Okay. So let's start on the side of commodities and then I'll talk a little bit about what Lukács calls the contemplative stance. So, okay. So a commodity is a, um, it's a use value as we know, but that is, um, that is valued according to its exchange value. So I'm, I'm not going to go through the you know, first three chapters of capital, um, but keep this in mind. But the use value is the qualitative side. The use value is the side that meets some concrete quality. Um, it's a nice guitar. It plays good music. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful car. Or maybe it's a shit car. Not all commodities have to be good. Um, but that's the qualitative side. And because these things cannot be compared because they're qualitatively different. I mean, you, this guitar is better than that guitar. This car is better than that car. Fine. But that's not a basis upon which to compare them within the market. So the, the quantitative side, the exchange value, um, I guess, 
you know, that's that's what matters for economics. The qualitative side, however, is that that part of it which embodies different human values. And you can see a similar sort of bifurcation in social structures. So, you know, we'll take a university. The qualitative side of a university, if you like the ideological side, um, is the side that purports to contribute to universal human knowledge, you know, reason, the development of freedom, a sort of a, a you know, a cosmopolitan discourse of scholars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The quantitative side is the side that's interested in making money from degrees, that's interested in, you know, um, you name it, that kind of thing. Um, so this bifurcation means that these two sides can come into conflict with each other. But this is about the objective world. This doesn't really tell us what's going on with consciousness yet. So to describe the way that this social setup impacts upon people, Lukács uses the term the contemplative stance. Um, this is the default subject position for all individuals within capitalism, he argues. Now, of course, this comes through very differently in, in, in people with different class backgrounds or different life experiences. You know, um, So he's not saying everyone has is, is got the same relationship ideologically to capitalism. Um, and as well, it's important to note that the contemplative stance, contemplative sort of would denote being passive in a lot of readers' minds. That's not necessarily true. You know, it can actually be a very, very active position. Um, what he really means, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, approaches to the world that Lukash describes that are hyperactive even, um, but whose activity doesn't um, touch the core or the essence of capitalism as a social structure, you know, whose movement is superficial. So, you know, what matters with the contemplative stance is that insofar as we're within this stance as individuals, and as well, it's not just a personal choice to get out of this, you know, it's, it's a fact of life, really. Um, we are divorced from any meaningful control um, or any meaningful role in producing the social relationships that structure our lives. And so this reduces us to the position of observers. Insofar as we can be active, we can be active in our, in our own interests, you know, um, at, for example, starting a business. Or, for example, willing ourselves to go to work every day. Um, or there are more radical forms of it. You know, you, one, you could drop out of society. Um, you know, you could become an activist. That's probably a better choice. Um, so that's sort of the contemplative stance. And that also reproduces the divide between quality and quantity. So if you think, I guess a very, you know, humdrum run-of-the-mill approach, you know, type of individual would be just a business owner who there is quality or there are qualitative values in that person's life. Who knows what they might be? They might be there that person's family it might be you know saving up money for a nice house it might be simply a, a commitment to the self-expansion of value and the desire to become a capitalist um, there is a qualitative life purpose within this but this individual um, fits their energy and, and their work um, to i guess uh, fitting within the quantitative logic of capitalism you know they try and succeed within it i mean insofar as that's the case yeah they're reified they're alienated but their role is a source of power to them um for the working class, and in, this is also true for, for oppressed groups, although in different in different ways, um, our experience of the quantitative side of capitalism is dehumanising. Um, it becomes intolerable. Life sucks. It's, you know, can't afford to live. Um, Got to go to work. Work always gets worse, what have you. Um, but then the qualitative element that remains is the element of freedom with which we motivate ourselves to go to work. So capitalism is not a system of direct um, direct physical compulsion in the same way that a, a system based around slavery is. It's Capitalism is a system that requires us to freely will ourselves um, to go to work, to, to have a role within, um, to sell our labour, to be a part of um, our own exploitation. But that freedom is a remainder of quality. 
um, or the human quality of freedom, that we can start to turn against the uh, quantitative logic of capitalism. Now, that's also where I introduce in the book an important distinction, because when Lukács talks about the proletariat or the standpoint of the proletariat, um, in some ways, I think he's doing two things. He's describing the empirically existing social class. So, you know, we could talk about class consciousness in any given context or his context, what have you, and we could talk about the way that classes form consciousness. Um, but he is also talking about, effectively, he is a theorist who is imputing this standpoint to an empirical class. Um, so as an individual, Lukács has a particular relationship to the contemplative stance and as an individual, he's someone who has committed himself to the working class and to, to class struggle. So I think also within his theory, we do need to account for the role of someone like Lukács, like a theorist. And, you know, he wasn't a working class guy. He is from a, um, a very wealthy background. There's a Von in his name. He was actually a, in his family a minor nobility, but I think they were late to the party, the capitalists. Um, so within, within someone like Lukács, well, let me put it this way. There are many different ways of life or approaches to life that combine the quantitative and qualitative elements of the contemplative stance in kind of unique ways. And George Simmel is a really good source for some of these. You know, you could be, one could be an artist and live a life directed towards the pure quality of aesthetic value. And then how you fit within sort of a, a quantified um, economic system is another question. Um, you know, you could be a radical activist, in which case your, you know, your value is, is ethical. Um, and, you know, your lifestyle might be lived around that ethical pursuit. Um, for Lukács as a theorist, and of course as an activist as well, the qualitative element is, I suppose, the ability to reflect intellectually on the subjective freedom that capitalism has um, given us, that I was talking about before, and the ethical commitment to become an acti activist for uh, the working class, which in his mind is a class that can um, end an inhuman situation. So... Interestingly, there are pathways within the, the um, contemplative stance that he outlines both for the proletariat, but and also for the for the for an intellectual, you know, for a theorist like Lukács, um, outside that give us a way to criticize that stance and ultimately, he would hope, practically transform it. Yeah, to develop uh, the theory here a little more, um, for Lukács, uh, you outline four elements of theory that are required for it to not only you know, develop a proper understanding of a situation, but also kind of turn into praxis that is capable of actually changing the world or uh, producing a revolution. We've been using some of these terms, but I think it's worth pausing to kind of unpack them and also talk about how they interrelate. So for you, the four main terms are praxis, mediation, totality and genesis. So praxis is obviously central for Lukács and in a way kind of the goal. Um, genesis is a kicking off point and then mediation and totality are both required as well. Can you maybe give us a quick understanding of these terms and how they work together for Lukács to form this kind of overall worldview that's capable of producing some sort of revolutionary activity? Yeah, so these terms operate in different ways at different levels of Lukács' theory. So, for example, in his discussion of German idealism, you know, he he basically, I think, conducts a philosophical reflection on how these terms emerge through Kant, um, Fichte, um, Schelling, Hegel, and then culminating with Marx, whereas they're also operative in some of the more sociological elements of his theory. Um, but I'll sort of go through the terms one by one. 
I say that because to understand them properly, you sort of have to understand the way that they develop within his his overall philosophy. Um, but that's what the book's for. Um, I guess the founding conviction of Lukács' philosophy praxis is an intuitive or immediate ethical commitment to praxis. You know, he can see that humanity is out of control of the world. Uh, he can understand that what's needed is a practical movement that can overthrow things, um, that can reform society. Um, and he's got this deep commitment to it, but it's not a worked out commitment. You know, it's not at the beginning of the philosophy, his philosophy praxis. It's not something that he's worked through rationally. It's, it's a commitment. You know, it's an immediate commitment. In the same way as if you join a movement, you have an immediate commitment to that movement, and then you have work to do to figure out what's going on. What are the issues? You know, who's leading it? Is there a strategy? How do we understand different things? So then the next step would be mediation. Mediation in Lukács has a similar weight to negation in Hegel. Um, it's to be able to critique. Um, I can't stand it when people use that word as a verb, and I should not do it myself. It's to criticise this, that, the other social phenomena. Um, now, of course, like everyone can do this in all sorts of different ways, but the key thing with mediation with Lukács is mediation has to be a concrete mediation. So, you know, it's not just a abstract rejection of things. It's not saying, oh, well, I don't like this, you know, public transport tickets are too high. This sucks. You know, where it's not really that. I mean, that's a critical move, but it's much more saying, how does this, how does the thing I criticize, how does that disclose a deeper social logic? Right? So declining wages, you know, and the increased, um, you know, as wages decline over the last couple of decades, it's the case in Australia, it's the case in, it's the case in pretty much most economies, really, it's part of neoliberalism. As the as wages decline, the share of national um, profits that goes to capital go up, right? That's a that's a simple critique that, that most socialists would be able to make of society. Well, then the key there is grasping the concrete mediation between declining wages and the social totality. So mediation gives rise to the concept of totality. An interesting way to talk about totality is there are all sorts of spurious or ideological totalities in currency today, and they're often allied with um, abstract, um, what Lukács might call abstract mediations. So you take sort of the, the conspiracy theorists around the coronavirus. You know, they'll criticise a vaccine and they'll say, oh, well, this is, a you know, some sort of Chinese plot or somehow Bill Gates is involved. I don't really know. Somehow this re this relates to Big Pharma. Um, and there's an increasingly totalizing worldview there, which, which often tends in a fairly far right direction. Um, the issue here is there are no concrete mediations. No one can say here is how, you know, distributing a vaccine with microchips, and there's obviously no microchips, um, you know, here's how this concretely relates to XYZ you know, political movement or, or company or what have you, like the pic the totality that's presented is is basically an aesthetic totality. It's a picture of the world that suits the psychological needs of the actors um, that put it forward. And there's also other kind of, you know, abstract totalities like this. Like, for example, if you were to take as your starting point the nation as a totality, you know, you might end up with something slightly more sophisticated than the, um, you know, the anti-vaxxers, but it, it, this is still, you know, an ideological totality um, that, to a degree, is artificial. So the point for Lukács of concrete mediation is outlining the real connections between different social phenomena and the totality. Now, the issue with this is we have a picture of totality that is, it's a picture. It's a representation of a social reality that's extremely complex. And, you know, if you like, no one work of theory can capture the intricacies of a whole social system. You know, you'd be, it'd be an attempt to write a new encyclopedia. And then the moment you'd finished you know, someone would point out what was wrong with it. So Lukács talks about an aspiration toward totality. Um, you know, we complete a totalizing picture and we make it more rich as our movement develops. Um, so he's also discussing really a, a collective intellectual project here. That's another 
point I think that's worth making. But then insofar as we have these different pictures of totality, they are theoretical hypotheses about the actual structure of totality, the concrete totality. You know, this is why there are debates within, within you know, Marxist political analysis, political economy, you know, historical analysis, you name it, because we may all be on one level making claims about the relationship between different phenomena and totality, but they won't all be right. Some will be wrong. Um, but we would hope that our picture becomes more concrete over time. The way to test this is through its practical involvement in history, for one. So there's a practical test going on. But two, as well, to understand that the totality itself is in a process of development. So we don't have a static social totality. Where we have a, a social totality that is itself fractured, that is it itself in some ways open and in some ways closed, in which some parts contradict with the whole, um, you know, and, and in which, you know, there can be imminent crises within that. And this is because this totality is a historical product. It's been made by us um, and it's been made in circumstances not of our choosing. So then comprehending this gets you to Genesis. So the way in which historical totality is, is constructed, um, this is a very important sort of de-reifying moment or, or, you know, way to counter ideology because it means seemingly eternal facts about society are, are relativized and historicized. But then to really grasp that as well, we have to grasp the historical logic going on. So, for example, how do different classes relate to each other in, in struggle? You know, how do the economic needs of a nation uh, marginalize certain social groups or classes, um, give others power, you name it. So that's sort of the criteria of Genesis. Ultimately, then, to test our theoretical arguments about totality and, and Genesis, um, to test our picture of the world, to test our analysis of the world, um, the analysis, our analysis of the world has to rise to meet a practical force that can make that critique actual, um, that can actually start to reshape the world. So really what Lukács is talking about here, I mean, you know, a theorist can try and do this and a theorist can be involved in some forms of praxis themselves. You know, you, what does Marx say? You, you go hunting in the morning, you go to a demonstration in the afternoon, you write a book in the evening. I don't know. Um, but like really what Lukács is talking about is, is a, the working class changing the world, but also in dialogue with a, a revolutionary party um, or a Leninist party. So that for him is the ultimate test of any theoretical hypothesis of the world is that it culminates in praxis. And then, of course, he has a very political definition of praxis. Maybe I'll, yeah. Do you, do you want to unpack that understanding? Like Shall we? Kind of jumping. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, this is also interesting because it, it gets to the party and class question. And most of the academic commentators on Lukács, um, they take one look at his Bolshevism and they go, this man is an authoritarian and he's a Bolshevik and we don't like this. Maybe we like the term reification a little bit. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, but most of the academics... Um, you know, discard his Bolshevism. Interestingly, there's an inverse phenomena when you come to the far left readings of Lukács. Um, there are, there's a handful of books written by intellectuals in the far left who love his Bolshevism, who don't really understand his philosophy, um, but they just like the Bolshevism because it accords with their politics. Fine, whatever, you could do worse. Um, with For Lukács, the, he's got a very interesting account of Leninism and of Bolshevism, and it is radically democratic. And there's only been a few commentators that, that have really noticed this. Merleau-Ponty was probably the first um, in his essay, um, Western Marxism, which is in the book um, Adventures of the Dialectic, um, which is a really, really good essay. It's, it's one of the best out there. But then some of the more recent commentators like um, uh, Konstantinos Kavalakos, like he gets that Lukács is a, is a radical Democrat. And what this means is for Lukács, the proletariat is the, the subject-object of history, potentially, um, 
he doesn't think it's always the case, but if the proletariat goes through a process of class struggle and development towards class consciousness, which is a complicated process for him, you know, there are strikes, general strikes, then the work, you know, the working class movement has to figure out its relationship to different distinct political issues. So in his time, the land question, the national question, you know, how do we, what do we do about the war? You know, those kinds of questions. Um, the working class itself has to go through this process of self-education through struggle in order to get to a point where it can start to approach its historic role as a subject object of history. Um, but then at the same time, the party goes through a process of imminent development itself. Um, and this is a way, I guess you could call this the desublimation of theory by practice. So the founding moment of a revolutionary party, I mean, the really early moment, like take the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, you know, in the 18, what, the 1880s or the 1890s, you've got Plekhanov banging on about the need for Marxism in Russia and telling the Narodniks why they're all wrong because they haven't read Capital. Um, so like, you know, a party is founded by a theoretical moment. Like it's it's first and foremost a representation of a theory. But then in that initial moment, that theory is extremely abstract. You know, it's like literally Plakhanov running a reading group on Capital. Great. You know, go to that guy's reading group on Capital. But this doesn't really tell you what you need to know in order to actually change Russia. So then as that party develops through the early 1900s, through the 1905 revolution, during the war, and as it gets bigger, as it evolves itself in more struggles, it doesn't lose the theory, but it desublimates the theory. The theory becomes deeply imbricated with practical movements, um, you know, and this means developing a much more concrete and complex analysis of the different um, issues in Russia. This is all, by the way, in, in Lukash's book on Lenin, uh, Lenin, the study of the unity of his thought. So this is sort of, that's the historical example that, that he's got in mind, including in history, history and class consciousness. And so the party, insofar as it, it concretizes its theory through um, bringing it closer to, the, to reality and building a, a richer picture of reality by gaining members, the party hopes that it can prove its theoretical uh, well, it's, it's analysis of objectivity, of social objectivity. It hopes that it can prove that by successfully leading struggle. And this is a, a totally voluntary and democratic relationship between party and class. You know, the party approaches the working class in whatever way. I mean, I'm using slightly schematic terms here because like party members will be part of the working class if, you, if you're dealing with a mass party. Um, but, you know, party members in a given city or in a given workplace will turn up and go, ah, this is what we need to do. Here are the key issues facing us. You know, the czar is, you know, we need democracy, we need the eight-hour day, we need to give peasants land, what have, what have you. Um, you know, here's how to fight, here's what to fight around. And insofar as they have a good picture of reality, they will win in practice um, and thus, you know, um, gain popularity and gain respect. And so Lukash's picture of, of the emergence of praxis is effectively a dialectic um, between party and class in which both sides, if in the most general sense, the party represents theory and the class represents practice. But of course, within each of those terms, a party has a practical component. You know, like working class people obviously have theories and they think about the world, you know, they're not just pure practitioners. Um, so the outcome of this ideally is praxis. Um, this does imply a quite specific definition of praxis. Um, now, you know, if you like, like a successful strike is praxis. Like there will have been a theoretical hypothesis about the conditions at a workplace, what needs to be done, you know, here's how it fits with the legality, here's what we should demand, here's the work we need to do to get people involved. Then it works really well. You go, oh, well, this is good, theory-guided practice. That worked. That's praxis, sure. But fully actualized praxis or fully realized praxis for Lukash is a kind of practice that can alter the social totality and that can start to consciously grasp history. So a strike doesn't really do that. You know, it's certainly better than not striking, but 
the strike doesn't change the social totality. Um, whereas a general strike does start to, and an insurrection really does. So that's why praxis for Lukash at its highest level is political. And the highest form of praxis for Lukash is the democratic decision by the proletariat to back a party that wishes to lead a working class insurrection and establish a worker state. Now, I think there's some interesting ambiguities in that term because I think Lukash does tend to exclude the role of the sovereign and the role of someone like Lenin in all of this, even though he's a Bolshevik and he's very much pro-Lenin and he's a Leninist. I think he does tend to invest in the proletariat well, he does tend to argue that the proletariat has the final decision-making status, and I think this does tend to elide the decision made by the party um, in Russia. But nonetheless, that's his definition of, of praxis. And so for Lukash, that's the culmination of all of history. That is the highest term in his, in his philosophy. The point of it all is to get to praxis. Um, and praxis isn't this absolute consciousness, well, he does actually argue that praxis should take the concept of praxis should take over the truth claims of the Hegelian absolute, but he doesn't think it should do so in a way that's finally totalizing or that's that's um, you know that's monolithic. You know, praxis is really just for him the predominance of conscious human control over historical unconsciousness. Or you know, to to refer back to the famous, I think it's an Engels quote, um, or is it Marx? The realm of freedom as opposed to the realm of necessity. You know, praxis is is a transition point in which humans begin for the first time to quant to um, consciously make our world. But of course, we can never do so in a, you know, all knowing way. But that's, that's the turning point for Lukash. Yeah, I want to loop back to something you said earlier about for Lukács, um, the decision to join a movement or join a political party. Uh, there is a lot of theoretical work that eventually needs to be done. But for him, it starts out in kind of a somewhat untheoretical uh, fashion. It's almost a sort of religious decision. And uh, Kierkegaard comes up a couple times uh, in your discussion of some of his own personal biography. I'm wondering if you could talk about this uh, kind of almost religious or spiritual uh, initial starting point people will have with these sorts of left-wing movements for Lukács um, and how that kind of is then supposed to turn into a more sustainable theoretical vision. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not sure that everyone that joins a, let's talk about, you know, socialist or communist movements. I'm not sure that everyone that joins a socialist or communist movement does so in the manner of a religious conversion. I mean, to, to say that might overextend the comment. I mean, maybe you could make a case like that. But, you know, I mean, you know, just as well, someone, and especially if we're dealing with a mass movement, they may join it because it answers questions that, have, that face them in their neighbourhood, when their workplace. You know, they may, they may have, be friends with you know, socialists, they, there may be socialists at their work, there may be socialists that organise um, movements that they respect, and they join it because it answers immediate questions. In a sense, with someone like that, there is a decision to join a movement that's greater than them, that knows more than them. So maybe there's an element of faith in that. But like the way that Lukash joined the movement was particularly religious, um, and had, and, you know, particularly redolent of a conversion. I guess then, well, I'll try and talk about this in terms of Lukash's biography, but while relating it to his to his theory. So as I mentioned before, Lukash was a pretty unhappy guy. Um, you know, he came from a very privileged background, but he was extremely culturally attuned. Um, so he's from Hungary, which has an interesting status within Europe. Um, Hungarian intellectuals on the left did not like Hungary. You know, they saw it as a very backwards, very isolated country, um, and they were usually, you know, Germanophiles. They, they thought that Hungarian culture needed to be improved with Germanic culture, um, you know, German, German philosophy. 
you know, Lukács was obsessed with classical German idealism, with the German literary tradition, um, et cetera, et cetera. But then, you know, Lukács, I guess, was always homeless in the world. Well, until he became a communist, he was very homeless in the world. Um, you know, he found it very difficult to find a vocation that was stable. Um, he sort of felt excluded from a lot of the social circles um, that he was in. Um, he had some fairly tumultuous relationships. Um, one of his early lovers, Irma Seidler, um, committed suicide, and that, that had a huge impact on him. It wasn't she did so for her own reasons. It wasn't particularly because of her relationship with Lukash, but that had a huge impact on him. Then he had a second relationship with a Russian social revolutionary terrorist who was a fanatic who sounds like, you know, she was a very difficult person to be with. Um, and so, you know, Lukash is sort of feeling empty and spiritually barren. And interestingly, there is a parallel between that moment in Lukash's life, I think, and the kind of spiritual emptiness that Lukash sees in the experience of the workday um, for the proletariat. Um so in a sense, the individual um, who's trapped in a contemplative position, with, and in particular a theorist, can achieve, I think in Lukash, a similar kind of self-emptying as a working, as the class, as, as people in the working class might experience as part of their workday. That doesn't, of course, mean that intellectuals, you know, are the subject of history, they're still just intellectuals. But in a sense, it's kind of like a, it's a conscious radicalization of the inner emptiness of subjective freedom and capitalism. And this inner emptiness prepared Lukash for a conversion experience. So as a result of this, and he sort of goes through different, he, he experiments with different possibilities for addressing this inner emptiness. Um, you know, he just sort of despairs, he He's not an artist. He's not a writer. Um, he, he knows that he can't really do that. Um, maybe there's a part of him that I'd like to, but he's a critic. You know, this is before he's a Marxist. And he just sort of despairs of the remove between the critic and the work of art. He sort of despairs that, well, we can't produce epic works of art anymore. You know, the novel is a bourgeois form, as he famously argues. Um, you know, he, he sort of despairs as well that he, as an individual, seems to be incapable of taking the radical and extreme ethical action that he thinks is necessary again, prior to being a Marxist, is necessary to, um, you know, ending capitalism and, and bringing, um, like, uh, birthing a newer and higher form of civilization. So he sort of, you know, he's he can't do any of these things. Then the communist movement comes along. And then finally, the guy's ready. He takes a leap. He joins the communist movement. There's a fascinating essay, um, Bolshevism as a Moral Problem. He publishes this just before the Hungarian Revolution in which he criticises Bolshevism um, for its willingness to use violence and to kill. So it's a really, you know, quotidian kind of almost liberal critique of Bolshevism. Um, he revises the essay once the revolution's happened, not in a utilitarian direction. He doesn't say, oh, yes, well, you know, we might kill some people, but in the end it's good because humanity will be free. He says, yeah, no, we'll kill some people. And that's the absolute sin. And we have to take that on and fully confront that sin that we have to commit. And he refers to a Hungarian playwright's version um, of the uh, Judith um, story from the Old Testament. And this Hungarian play playwright puts words in Judith's mouth. So Judith killed Holofernes, who, who was a um, foreign king threatening um, the Israelites. Um, and so this Hungarian playwright has Judith say, well, if God places a sin between me and his command, who am I to disagree? I've paraphrased, but that's basically the thing. So, you know, when Lukács throws himself into the communist movement, it's as someone who is, he sees himself as ethically corrupt, almost. Like, you have to take on this sin in order to create a world that's that's beyond sin, 
it's free of sin. So, you know, he's having like, he's holding reading groups in the government building in the Hungarian Soviet revolution. This is according to observers that saw him, where he's talking about how communists are the equivalent of Jesus Christ and they have to be crucified for, for the revolution. So, you know, it's pretty spicy. It's pretty, pretty weird stuff. And um, it's kind of cool, but, and he wasn't, he was, he was not gutless about it either. Like when he went and fought in the front lines, well, he put into practice his his commitment to the need for for violence. I mean, he wasn't a particularly violent man, but like he, you know, at one point he organized a court martial for deserters um, because they were undermining morale on the front line. But then also because he was part of the Red Army who were trying to kill the White Army, um, you know, he understood. Well, I've, you know, I'm trying to take other people's lives, or I'm part of a part of an effort to you know fight. Um, so he insisted on that the other side had to have the right to take his life as well. So he walked above the trenches, exposing himself to enemy fire. Um, so, you know, these ethical gestures are sort of very religious. Um, and there's a degree of self-destruction going on in, in these things, I think. Um, so this religious, this sort of conversion moment committed him to a vision of praxis that then I think he articulates and gives theoretical grounding throughout the 1920s um, because that, initial ethical and quasi-religious commitment to it is really not enough. And in a sense, the self-contradiction involved in that stance is, well, Lukács is committed to a universal project, right? Well, if you're committed to a universal project on a religious, um, you know, or theological basis, and if your connection to that project is mediated by faith, then it's all too easy to simply project the contents of your own soul onto the universal movement, in which case your commitment to that, you're committed to a universal, it's a universal that is actually covertly a psychological need. Um, so in order to be genuinely committed to, to the working class movement, to socialism, Lukács had to work out the objectivity of that movement and how it actually functioned. And that meant overcoming a purely faithful um, or faith-based relationship with the movement. Um, of course, the, you know, I'm, I'm using, in a sense, there's just one quick point to make about you know, the sense of religion. Um, we're not talking about a transcendent God. We're talking about communism. And so in that sense, this is this is like a political theology. Um, but then, you know, in a, God is dead. So theology has to emerge in different spheres. Yeah, uh, really kind of interesting stuff. Um, to kind of follow up with that and also loop back in what you were saying earlier about uh, the importance of the party. Um, for Lukács, uh, the party plays a really important role in kind of taking this original decision to commit oneself to this sort of political movement, but helping cultivate it, uh, cultivate consciousness a little more, uh, give people a much clearer sense of how to understand their situation, how to act within it. Um, and I want to bring this up partly because I think people often assume the job of a political party is to give its members work to do. And that's certainly part of it, but it's also really to train their members, to teach them theory, to teach them how to think critically, to teach them how to do work. Um, so kind of taking this initial decision of commitment and kind of cultivating it into a much more serious militant sort of organizer. Can you maybe speak to that aspect of the party and its importance and kind of building people up as organizers oh yeah uh, well this isn't going to be an interesting yeah okay because in practice well the communist movement in europe certainly did this i think possibly lukas overstated the extent to which it did and i think there's a one-sidedness in his account of this and i think this does relate to some of the the criticisms that i'd make of his philosophy of practice um but you know i'll start with with the the picture that he that he envisaged 
for the communist movement. So, okay, you join a party, you do a lot of educational work, you know, but you're also involved in practical work. Um, you know, Lukash gave lectures, um, you know, while a communist, he wrote texts for the communist press, like he's heavily involved in some of this work. Um, and he's also has opinions about some of the practical organizing work. So, and we're dealing with movements of hundreds of thousands of people here that are predominantly, you know, working class, but, you know, a lot of Europe's um, avant-garde ended up in the communist parties as well. So, you know, party members in this context, they're joining a political community that seeks its own self-education um, so that it can more efficiently lead struggle and, and, and liberate people. Um, for Lukash, this means membership of a political community that begins to overcome the abstraction inherent to bourgeois politics in which we relate to each other purely formally as bearers of rights and as abstract individuals. Instead, you're part of a community uh, where we're concretely connected with each other, where our opinions really matter and where through our ongoing relationships we can um, you know, learn from each other and we can develop over time. Let me put it this way. Um, democracy, this is my view, only really makes sense in terms of the self-education of the community that is organised democratically, whereas a typically liberal view of democracy says, well, we need democracy because everyone's equal, and that's the only way to mediate between equal individuals. Well, yeah, true, everyone is equal in rights, that's that's good, that's important, but not everyone is equal in terms of their opinions or in terms of um, you know their the quality of their politics or the quality of their contribution. So that's obviously not a reason to deny people rights, clearly. But I think for a Marxist, the point of democracy is to learn through discussion with each other. And then this can particularly happen in a, in a concrete and an embedded community. And that could be within a workplace as well. It could be within a locality. That could be within you know, different spheres of the world. But this, this is meant to happen um, in a party. And then partly this also means learning through experience. Um, you know, I don't know if you've been in a few movements and, and, you've, dealt, and you, you've come up against the problem of, I guess, sectarianism or the problem of, you know, kind of a more conservative or right-wing attitude towards different social forces, the state, you know, unions, what have you. And you, you, you can have a theoretical critique of these things, but to really round that out, you have to see what it does in practice, what these kinds of phenomena do in practice. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of a, um, an ultimate test of that theory. So then if that is successful, then in Lukács' view, the community of the party can actualise that initial commitment to liberation that its members have by making it more concrete, making it more effective in the real world. And effect, ultimately, this means winning over uh, a majority in the workers' movement and establishing institutions like workers' councils or like, you know, there might be others these days, um, in which people can, I guess, there's one political scientist from the States whose name I forget, who's got a sort of very analytic frame. So the way he approaches terminology is quite different to me, but he uses the term strong democracy as opposed to a weak democracy. A strong democracy being one in which we know the people with whom we're involved in the democratic decision-making process. And so we can learn over time, um, you know, so and so parties' views can be compared over time in a meaningful and serious way. Um, that's kind of the vision that Lukács uh, has for the communist movement. To give you like one other example of what this means, well, then the role of theory within this and the role of philosophy within this um, this gives us concrete freedom vis-a-vis -vis the categories that we use to understand the world. What does that mean? The best clear example, I think the clearest example of this in Lukács' writing is the essay on legality and illegality um, in history and class consciousness. So, you know, when you're in a movement, you sometimes might have to consider doing something that's illegal. I don't mean individually, but I mean like a strike. Strikes sometimes break the law. 
strikes, certainly in Australia, strikes are heavily restricted. Um, so oftentimes a strike will break the law. Um, or, you know, there could be other, an occupation. You want to go and occupy a vice chancellor's office? That's not legal. Um, and in, in a more intense period of struggle, you know, you could, there could be factions within a communist movement that gravitate towards some sort of ultra militancy where they want to provoke armed struggle. Um, or, you know, they shift towards a kind of a voluntarism, what have you, that, that could break laws in different ways. Um, so, like, you come, up, you come up against the question of, of legality and illegality. Well, you've immediately got differing abstract alternatives. You've got one alternative which fetishizes illegality. So it says, well, how, you know, how could anyone accede to the, you know, legality of, um, in Australia's case, a white colonial settler state, um, this is despicable, you know, we have to have no respect for this legality, um, therefore, in principle, we must break the law. And then on the other side, you've got perhaps social democrats or perhaps, you know, smaller liberals or, or what have you, who basically respect the legitimacy and sovereignty of the legal system um, and who are, in principle, reluctant to ever break the law. The problem is both of these sides fetishise an aspect of the social totality, the law. And both of these sides don't recognise that the law is contingent, that's historically produced, and it's the historical product of a particular class. Um, although the fetishism of illegality uh, fetishises the law, I guess, through abstract negation of the law. But you can still see that the relationship to law is the primary overarching you know, concept for people who fetishise legality. Um, so Lukács' argument is, well, if we understand you know, the historical origins of this legal system, if we understand its role in terms of the social totality, then this gives us the ability to think freely within the law and make, I guess, an indifferent decision. Do we break the law? Do we not? Well, that's really based on the exigencies of the situation. Most of the time, no, it's really a bad idea. Sometimes, they, yes, you need the leader strike to, to victory, even if that means breaking the law. And so if communists have this kind of understanding of, of these concepts, um, I guess we can use our concepts without being used by them. You know, and there's many other examples uh, of this kind of thing. But that's the kind of, I guess, intellectual training Lukács uh, wanted the communist movement to impart to its members. Did it really do that? Not really. In Europe in the 20s? Obviously, it produced great thinkers and, and you know, the, the mass of, of communists in Europe in the 20s were certainly people who, who had a strong intellectual commitment to understanding the world. But, you know, aside from a couple of important thinkers, it was a pretty dogmatic movement. You know, and I think Lukács' argument for uh, Marxist theory and a return to and a return to philosophy as well, I think it fell on largely deaf ears. Yeah, so moving along, so that brings us through a lot of the kind of theoretical reconstruction you do in this book um, of Lukács' 1920s work. But then you have a long series of sections where you go through a series of critiques people have raised about mm -hmm. Lukács. And for people interested in that, I would highly recommend this book because you go through a dozen or so different critics looking at the different ways they've kind of found limitations with this thought and responded to it. So this will be, I think, a really useful book for people who are well read in Lukács but want to see how he's been responded to. But to kind of try and talk a bit about uh, some of the overarching or key critiques. Um, I want to quote you uh, shortly. You write, quote, Lukács' philosophy was formed at a distance from the practice upon which it purported to base itself. At no point did Lukács attempt to make himself the spokesperson for any other praxis. Thus, a pernicious chasm existed between philosophy of praxis and praxis. And the above 
section illustrated the violence wrought by history on Lukács' philosophy as penalty for this chasm. Can you maybe unpack this split people found between Lukács' actual praxis and his philosophical developments? You know, what did they see as the problem or limitation here that he failed to really step into? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, because that passage that you read out in some ways, that's that's the critique of, of Lukács that I would put forward. Um, so I'll talk about that perhaps a little bit in a second, but it does relate to, to how other critics of Lukács have spoken about him um, and spoken about his philosophy of praxis. Um, I guess, look, the story where that's concerned begins in the Comintern as well. Like the first critics of Lukács' philosophy of praxis were Comintern intellectuals, um, you know, like, um, you know, Abraham de Boren, who was a, a philosopher in the Soviet Union, formerly a, a Menshevik um, you know, he read Hegel, but he read the philosophy of nature. He, you know, some books should be left on the shelf, and I suspect probably de Boren's are among them. Um, and he, you know, by criticising Lukács, he was very, very, I think, quite consciously um, doing the bidding of, of Grigory Zinoviev, you know, part of the Russian leadership of the Comintern, um, who saw Lukács and intellectuals like that as a threat. Um, and, but, you know, like, De Boren's position was mirrored by social democrats, by Hungarian writers, and then interestingly, later on, by the Frankfurt School. Um, so you get someone like Adorno saying that, well, Lukács is effectively a latter-day fichte. He wants to um, liquidate all objectivity into pure subjectivity. Um, and, you know, if you're a Soviet critic of Lukács, you do not criticise his Bolshevism. Instead, you say, you know, he's an, he's an idealist, he's an ultra-leftist, and he's anti-Leninist. Whereas if you're someone like Adorno or someone that was influenced by the Frankfurt School, you say... Well, he's an idealist, he's a Hegelian, um, and this is related to his Bolshevism, which we don't like. So that became the standard line on Lukács throughout the whole 20th century. Now, in a sense, there's a grain of truth in some of these criticisms, but I think the big problem is they just failed to they fail to grasp Lukács as a whole, and they fail to read the guy charitably. Um, there's a weird anxiety to criticise Lukács for the majority of commentators throughout the 20th century. Um, and there's you know, they don't really extend a lot of intellectual generosity to the guy. Um, you know, there's a few, like there's a minority position, which which sort of I go through in the book, of, you know, among Merleau-Ponty is one, like, you know, Ernst Bloch had a beautiful review of Lukács, uh, History and Class Consciousness in the early 20s. You know, there's a handful of other people that read the guy well. Um, but the the critics, you know, for um, Andrew Arato and Paul Brian are two sort of new left critics of Lukács um, who do read him better than most, but sort of what they say, well, they, they point to, they say, well, the working class was not the subject or object of history. You know, this is this is attributing to the working class godlike status. This isn't going to really happen. They also have a sort of very, very new left criticism of the extent to which that posits a class reductionist picture of the world. And you know, they're the kind of like they're the kind of theorists that sort of want a multiplicity of different movements, you know, emerging, challenging different things simultaneously, but not in a united way. Um, so, in a sense, I think they direct, reject some of the totalizing gestures within Lukács' philosophy as well. Um, so that they'll say, well, the working class could never play this role; it did never play this role. So, to paper over the gap between what Lukács expected of the proletariat and what the pro- proletariat could actually do, they argue that Lukács uh, created a account of the party. Well, that Lukács substituted the party for the proletariat, and that in fact the party he substituted philosophy for the party ultimately. So they would argue that, that, you know, in the end he he had an authoritarian account of the party because it had to make up for a, a lack um, present in the workers' movement. Um, see, the problem with that is Lukács' version of the party and the class was highly, highly democratic, and there's a thousand different steps he points to between the party and the class. I mean, and, you know, like it wasn't irrational in his day to think that. Like 
the working class in Russia had just formed a workers' government with Soviets at the top. So there are criticisms to be made of that, I think. But like in the same, this was on the cards in Germany. You know, there was a vast workers' council movement. So, you know, the working class was actually impacting on history and was doing so in a unified manner, led by mass working class parties, which were very different from the monolithic Stalinist parties that, that you know, predominated in the 30s. Now, they were actually parties made up of people who debated each other and, you know, that listened to each other. They weren't authoritarian parties. They may have been dogmatic, but, like, they weren't authoritarian. Um, so, you know, this said, the thing that I'm getting at in, in the thing that you, that you, the quote that you read out is a little different, but it does relate. So... And it sort of, it does presuppose the theoretical status of the concept of praxis within Lukács' whole philosophy. So actual praxis, that is the thing that de-reifies the world. And in fact, philosophy itself is a reified way of looking at the world because it is, um, well, in Lukács' language, um, it's the development of the abstract rationality of capitalism to a point where it can reflect upon itself and its own abstract rationality and grasp the need to immerse itself within history in order to, to become actual and to become concrete and to cease to be schematic. You know, so he's got this nice quote that, you know, in basically like there are two ultimate possibilities for philosophy um, in a reified universe, um, platonic idealism or a kind of Nietzschean relativism. Um, you know, the latter dissolves everything into a flux and it, it's a kind of perspectivism, um, which you know, it sort of abandons reason, whereas the platonic idealism, he he argues, um, is the more rational one and it's the superior one, but it creates an ideological schematic that, that's divorced from the world. He sort of says that's where Hegel ends up. Um, well, to overcome that status of philosophy, philosophy itself has to emerge into history in the form of a mass movement, um, a working class movement. And so praxis is the term, it's the highest truth. You know, it's it's higher than the abstract truth of philosophy for Lukash. Well, so this is all fair and good, but in which case, how can the philosopher express what praxis is? Because the you know a fully critical and self-aware philosopher of praxis like Lukash understands the abstraction of the vantage point from which they're writing. You know, he understands that he's as a theorist or as a philosopher, he is writing. You know, what he's writing has a strong element of reification within it, right? And he's writing after praxis. So he's representing the concept of praxis, um, or he's building a philosophy based on this concept and based on a recollection and a reflection upon a real history that happened. So there is already and always a gap between the praxis upon which he built his system and you know the system itself. And I think, well, that gap got worse over time. I mean, there's practical elements to this, like there's no communist party that you know, embraced Lukashian Marxism. Lukashian Marxism has never been a practical trend within the left. You know, it's more that people within the left read Lukash, you know, to spice up their theoretical life when they get bored of the standard texts. Um, you know, and, and philosophers and academics read Lukash. Um, so that was an issue. But then, you know, if your philosophy of praxis is based upon a historical example of praxis like 1917, the further away you get from 1917, the more pernicious the gap grows. And this effectively means that philosophy of praxis its role, you know, read at a, reading Lukash, you know, with a total fidelity to the text, but then trying to construct sort of the most rigorous Lukash possible. If you were going to be an orthodox Lukashian, the only thing to do in philosophy is to remember the Russian Revolution. That's pretty nostalgic. You know, that's pretty, I think, fairly weirdly nihilistic. Um, and that can be allied with a messianic theory. You know, it's a bit Christian, really. Like, you know, Christ died for our sins, or the Russian Revolution died for our sins. Maybe this is appealing if you're a Trotskyist. Um, and then one day it will be reborn. And it'll be reborn because, you know, we've 
preserved the correct program or we've preserved the correct theory from it. Well, this, I think, ends up using historical event effectively as a bearer of the insight of the theorist who's probably just a bit of a, a nihilist who's um, you know, trapped in a quite a nostalgic viewpoint. So in a sense, I'd like to, to relative, basically, this gets into the point, you know, sort of my argument about Lukash, instead of saying that praxis has to be the bearer of truth, say, and then, you know, the, the bearer of a standpoint that's beyond the, the ideology of bourgeois society, why don't we simply say, well, we practice a philosophical method that um, understands how to mediate the contradictions um, within ideology that, that um, impact us um, because of bourgeois society. Um, and this can generate a vantage point that is always within the present, that can then critically reflect on our concepts. So within that, and I, I just wrote the other week um, an article on the concept of praxis, you know, trying to outline this, this approach to it. Um, this means we can have a concept of praxis, but we can try and use it critically so that we're not simply using it as a bearer for whatever insight we're trying to articulate, um, so that we can acknowledge the role of the philosopher within articulating a philosophy of praxis. Another critique you bring up regarding Lukács, um, we talked about the four elements of theory for him, the um, praxis, mediation, totality, and genesis. Now, for Lukács, um, his Hegelianism, for him, he had to hold these uh, theoretical elements together in sort of a dialectical unity. Um, but you point out that in opening this up as kind of something that theory needs to do, uh, you also point out that um, a number of critics have pointed out that he failed to actually do it. They failed to kind of hold together for him. And what you end up with is uh, kind of to use the Hegelese uh, is just abstract negativity. So can you unpack this kind of theoretical dead end that Lukács uh, got into, you know, in spite of the kind of theoretical ambitions he had, he failed to kind of follow through on them? Yeah. This is a really interesting question because, okay, as a preface to my answer, a incorrect theory can usually evolve in a number of different directions. So I'm kind of against readings of Lukács' life which identify his later trajectory as the necessary result of his 1920s philosophy. But that said, there is a connection between the two, and I'll talk about that in a little in a second. But then the other point I wanted to make is, well, okay, so if you're a Hegelian, um, there's a role for a concept of praxis in Hegelian philosophy, and you know, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Marxist Hegelian, so there's a lot about Hegel that would need to change. Um, but you don't want praxis to be the highest concept. Um, rather, absolute method or the speculative method is the highest vantage point within within philosophy. Um, and this, it's not an imperious perspective. It's not a perspective that claims to know everything about politics. It's a it's a perspective that is practiced self criticism, um, and that which is why it's a method. You know, it, it's not a you know, all-encompassing system of knowing everything. And this depends on the you know the version of Hegel you like. Like this is a, a more left Hegelian position. Um, you know, it's a Gillian Rose position. Not that it's a young Hegelian position. I think they're different, but let's leave that aside. Um, whereas if you look at you want Praxis to do this term, to do this work. Yeah. Well, then what happens when Praxis doesn't exist anymore? You know, it's the 1930s. Praxis is not going well. Um, you know, Luca and Lukash is quite aware of this too. Like, you know, there's. I think there's a. No one's written about this yet, but there's a there's a very anti-Stalinist current within his book on the young Hegel. Um, but so if praxis isn't going well, but yet you want to preserve a, a philosophy of praxis, then one of the issues is mediation, totality, and genesis, those other three concepts, they're vouchsafed 
by the concept of praxis and they've indicated by actual praxis. Yeah. So without praxis, the relationships between these different concepts start to break down. Um, to give you a sense of what that means, well, okay, like outside of the er- an era of praxis, we may be may well be able to say the social totality has been created historically. It's a series of you know alienated social relationships that's susceptible to practical transformation. We may well be able to say here is the conceptual logic of history, but without actual praxis, we can't test any of these hypotheses. Concrete, in fact, we can't really go beyond abstract generalities. You know, we can't start to say, well, here's how we transform things. Here's what the concrete relationships that we will introduce instead of capitalist relationships are. You know, you just you're stuck in abstraction or maybe a moral criticism, you know, of things. There's there's different pathways you can go down. Um, so for Lukash, to give an example of what this means, I'll talk maybe about Lukash and his the way he resolved this problem. Um, and he's significant because he was really intellectually honest, you know, like he chose to stay in the Soviet Union and, you know, you can follow that decision if you want, but really, you know, who was doing well in the 1930s? You know, there's there's pretty much no one who didn't make some compromising decision in the 1930s. Um, so whatever, he stays in the Soviet Union and it's not a free place to be. Um, the agreement is effectively that he stops doing politics and he stops talking about the contemporary world. Um, it's an implicit agreement because he's a high-profile enough intellectual that they don't want to just kill him. Although they came pretty close a few times, like they did arrest him during World War II and he thought that was curtains for him, but, you know, he got out of it alive. Um, so the agreement is stop doing politics and you can do philosophy and literary criticism. And he becomes you know, fairly conservative in lit crit, you know, the sort of standard, the, and Lukash is obviously famous for this, you know, the, the sort of standard Lukash line from the 30s onwards being, well, if it's not social realist, it's not socialism. Um, you know, so he doesn't like modernism, he doesn't like Kafka, he doesn't like any of this stuff. But leave that aside. Um, so even though he makes these intellectual and political compromises, he does feel a need to work through the limitations of his earlier theory. Now, I think he doesn't, I don't, agree with the way he does it, but it's an instructive, um, it's instructive the way he does it. So Reddit, it's more radical. In his 1920s philosophy, the thing that makes Marxism true at the end of the day is not its capacity for analysis. It's not, you know, its ability to make predictions. It's not, you know, a scientific method inherited from bourgeois social sciences. The thing that makes Marxism true at the end of the day for history and class consciousness is the actual praxis of the working class. We mean 1917. This is what underpins the truth claims of Marxism, right? Well, if you abandon that, what else can underpin the truth claims of Marxism? There's different options out there. Like if you're, you know, an empiricist, you know, if you're, you know, a social democratic theorist, you might say, oh, well, you know, we have a scientific analysis of society and, you know, here's all this data. Um, But Lukács doesn't want to do that. So instead, he sort of says, well, there are two things that makes Marxism true after this point. The historic existence of the proletariat from Marx's day onwards so instead of saying it's the concrete praxis of a particular workers' movement, he just says, no, it's just the social existence of the proletariat. This makes Marxism possible as a viewpoint. And then the critique of political economy. So effectively, he says, you know, Marx, and he, he becomes obsessed with like Marx's development and how Marx became Marx. So he says, well, what makes Marxism true? Marx criticized political economy. You know, he learned from German idealism and criticized that as well. And then he could do this because of the existence of the proletariat. And so this... In a sense, it's still a historicization of Marxism because it says, well, Marxism is true from the moment that the proletariat exists through till the end of capitalism. But within that period of capitalism, it doesn't say that, well, actually, there is a, an actualization of Marxism's truth within concrete praxis that vindicates Marxism. Um, so what this does, I think, is it sacrifices genesis and praxis in favor of totality. 
he produces quite a logically rigorous account of Marx um, and Marx's debt to Hegel and, and to um, political economy, but it's a relatively dehistoricized one. And so I think it leads to effectively quite a schematic, it leads to a fairly schematic theory that can't really make contact with with politics or with reality. Um, that, you know, it's useful from a scholarly point of view, but it's less than it's less than the ambition that Lukash had previously. And I think, to be fair to the guy, he does kind of let, he doesn't just become a run-of-the-mill academic. He sort of, if praxis is meant to represent this truth that's beyond capitalism and beyond the contradictions, you know, inherited um, in thought as a result of capitalism, um, he does abandon that. But later on, I think he start, he becomes interested in aesthetics again, and they become the bearer of this post-capitalist truth that is accessible during capitalism. Um, but that's late Lukash. That's a different point. Um, so I guess the, the thing I'm getting at there is outside of praxis, well, actually, I think probably within a period of praxis as well, because, you know, I've got a, criti- a, a criticism of the way that, you know, Lukash uses that term. I think it's, to use the Hegelian term, it's, um, you know, it's, it's reflective thought. It's um, representational thought. Um, it's sort of, it uses praxis as a bearer for something else. Um, but anyway, like outside of actual praxis, um, the different categories can't be held together. So, okay, finally then another, and so you can fetishize different aspects of, of the overall philosophy. Final example, someone like Walter Benjamin, um, who's a beautiful writer, obviously, and I'm thinking of the, you know, thesis on the concept of history. Well, this guy is not interested in logical totalization. Like, you know, there's no systematicity to those. I mean, you can impute a systematicity to it if you want. I don't really know why you'd want to, because it's quite beautiful without, um, so, but, you know, what we have here is a conceptual logic of history that is, in a sense, irrationalist or that borrows a messianic aesthetic. So, you know, Benjamin takes a different path in my reading. He sacrifices logical totality or the, the, the push towards, you know, rational systematization in favor of a historical philosophy that effectively has an, ethi- an, um, an aesthetic, an ethical logic to it. You know, so again, this falls short of, I mean, not that Benjamin saw himself as a Lukashian philosopher of praxis. So, you know, this is just assessed from the point of view of the philosophy, you know, praxis I outlined. Um, but like this means that, you know, Benjamin's um, position also falls short of the totality of what Lukash's philosophy of praxis aspires to be. Um, I think this failure re- discloses an interior problem with Lukash's philosophy of praxis that also discloses a problem with his historical period. Yeah, moving right along. Um, so those are kind of a couple particular critiques that you've been working through. But I want to also ask, um, there's kind of the question of how does one return to Lukács and kind of wrestle with these limitations and try and salvage a lesson from them? Uh, and you spend a lot of time doing this with Lukács, but I think it also raises kind of a broader question of how does one kind of salvage from a thinker or an activist or both who in some way kind of fell short? How does one actually develop a positive lesson out of that shortcoming, be it, you know, Lukács, Lenin, Luxembourg, you know, there's a lot of people who in various ways fail to really live up to their theoretical or political ambition, but you're trying to you know, do something more rigorous and more productive than simply point out the shortcoming. You're trying to process it and, you know, move past, as we said, you know, the abstract negativity and kind of negate the negation. Can you maybe speak to that process and and what you're trying to do with this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because 
No, this is a good question because it, it sort of gets to the question of method as well. In a sense, whenever we talk about someone from the past, we are already and always producing a philosophy that is beyond them. But at the same time, interestingly, the moment you're dealing with a text, it's fixed. Um, the text doesn't change. And texts keep giving us new things every decade or two. You know, like it was only really in the 50s and 60s that you could write a feminist history of the Russian Revolution. So they're still using the same texts. So that's because our theoretical vantage points have evolved to the point where we could do that. Um, so, you know, the fact of my reading Lukash in the early 21st century, you know, some 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in an era in which the, you know, big debates within Marxism from the 20th century had largely receded. Um, so, you know, Trotskyism, Stalinism, Maoism, etc. like these currents still exist, but like, you know, I mean, even the Althusserians, the Althusserians have started to relax these days. Um, so, you know, like none of these debates have the same intensity. Um, so, you know, like that that's interesting. So there's already a big distance between me and Lukash or between us and Lukash. Um, but then, you know, there are things in the text that we keep discovering that are new. So really my question is like how to manage that tension between um, the text and the reader. And so, you know, it gets to what we were talking about at the beginning of the interview, um, the speculative method. So effectively my critique of Lukash's, it all rests on the critique of Lukash's concept of praxis, right? And if I, I believe that by reconstructing Lukash's uh, philosophy as a system, it's possible to point out the interior logical contradictions within that system, so the aporias within that system, and then having done that, that discloses something about his historic reality that he was unable to see himself. And that's not a moral failing. Like his inability to see, I mean, he, he was the best philosopher that the Marxist movement produced in that era, maybe ever. So, you know, this guy's great. Um, but like, in a sense, we're being honest by criticising him, you know, which is, you know, other people could criticise him in very different ways or people could have a more sympathetic position, but, you know, we're engaging in an honest dialogue with the guy to do this. We're not trying, we're not, there's not the false modesty of pretending that he's got all the answers um, and nor is there the false modesty of saying, oh, well, I'm just picking and choosing different, you know, parts of this system. You know, we're taking his contribution seriously, I think, by doing this. So the, the contradiction I think is, well, praxis has to do a lot of work in Lukács' philosophy, Right. Praxis creates the new because, you know, if, if you recall what we're talking about with the contemplative stance and with reification, this, it tends to exclude the qualitative or what's really valuable um, from the social totality and also from consciousness, because the logic of the market, commodity production, what have you. Um, this creates a kind of uniformity to capitalism that's concealed by incessant motion and the incessant expansion of the market. But he says, well, you know, the revolution will produce the new. Not just that, it'll produce the new you know, will self-knowingly produce the new. It'll be produced by a free humanity that can, for the first time, um, you know, rule itself um, and end the, you know, alienation between man and man, but between, you know, humanity and nature. Um, and, you know, like, there are some weird little moments in history and class consciousness. Like, at one point he says, well, we'll only be able to figure out, you know, what's materialist and what's idealist in Hegel after the revolution. Like, or we'll only be able to really work out Marx's capital after the revolution. Like there are all these questions that are deferred till after the revolution because praxis becomes the key to, you know, articulating uh, articulating the truth. Um, well, then, what's the issue with this? Well, he's already at a distance from praxis. He wasn't involved in the Russian Revolution, so how does he know? Um, that's one problem. But then this also falls well short of what praxis thought about itself. Like there's no one in Russia talking like this. You know, Lenin's not talking like this. God knows. So, like, he's still imputing a content to praxis. And it's also an overestimation of the degree of democracy in Russia. Um, 
And I think the thing that this really conceals, you know, there's other criticisms we made, but I think the thing it really conceals um, is, well, I think he produces a conceptual mythology of the concept of praxis. So praxis effectively papers over a problem that he himself could not solve to do with the historical reality that he was a part of. And I think that problem is bound up with the state and with the status of the political within the left in particular. So the thing that Lukash doesn't really talk about, he acknowledges at one moment in the defense of history and class consciousness, he doesn't really talk about it, um, is the decision. And interestingly, when he converts to Marxism, it is a radical decision. And he praises the decision when he converts to Marxism. So in his earliest and most messianic Marxist texts, they're all really about the decision and the act. You know, he's, and if, he even sort of goes back to his love life. Like, you know, why did he love the Russian social revolutionary? Well, she knew how to act. Um, so anyway, I don't want to psychoanalyze the guy, but like, you know, in, in the defense of history class consciousness, he talks about the act and the decision. He doesn't really ever talk about the decision of the sovereign. The October Revolution, in reality, yeah, the working class of Russia supported it. Like the Bolshevik party had become a majority party by the time October happened, but it was the decision of a party. Like, and, you know, really, like it was Lenin's decision that he fought for within the Central Committee and, and you know, managed to, to carry out. Lukash doesn't talk about this in the least. And I think that's because effectively for him, the proletariat is this, you know, it, it's meant to be the proletariat that makes all these decisions. When we think about it, like how can a whole social class of hundreds of thousands of people spontaneously make a decision? They can only make that a decision through the mediation of institutions like Soviets, like a party. Right? That's how masses of people make decisions together. Um, so, you know, Lukash comes close to talking about this, but he doesn't um, quite get there. Now, so that's the interior contradiction in his theory politically. There's all sorts of philosophical implications of this. You know, I, I deal with that in the book. But what does this tell us about history? Well, basically, I think what it tells us about history is that the Marxist movement at that point was still uh, enraptured by basically bourgeois conceptions of politics. To put it in kind of a really rhetorical sense, the Bolsheviks were Jacobins. I mean, in the in the classical sense of the French Revolution. They obviously, you know, different historical context and they, the working class didn't exist in the French Revolution, but they actualized a very bourgeois political logic. They absolutized a rational um, and reified state. Um, and that was progressive. They did as well as they could have done. But I don't think there was a fundamental break with bourgeois politics as such. And Lenin himself acknowledges this, sort of argues, well, it's been a bourgeois it's been a bourgeois revolution. At some point in the early 20s, Lenin says, well, we've created state capitalism under a workers' government, right? So, you know, this isn't as as heterodox as it sounds. This is the Leninist analysis of the Russian Revolution. Um, so, you know, and what's the problem here? Well, one way to approach it is if social democrats fetishize the legitimacy of the empirical state, the existing state, um, and therefore they're unfree, you know, they don't know how to think freely vis-a-vis politics. Well, Bolsheviks also fetishize the state but they fetishize the abstract utopia of a bourgeois state against the exact existing bourgeois state. So in a sense, you know, the Bolsheviks lead a bourgeois, bourgeois revolution in a country without a bourgeoisie. Well, they had a bourgeoisie, but it wasn't capable of leading a revolution. Um, and, you know, with the working class as the, as the social force behind that. Um, to my mind, this is something that Lukash gives us the tools with which to work through this fact, um, but he didn't do it himself. He began to. And I think start, part of the way, you know, like in saying this, you know, I'm not trying to put a like a left communist or anarchist critique of, of the Russian Revolution. You know, I'm saying well, this is, a, you know, politics is a fact of life. Um, and we need to understand the logic 
of the political systems that we're in so that we can use that logic and not be used by it, so that we can be concretely free. The left, in my mind, needs to understand the extent to which its categories and concepts are informed by bourgeois politics, by the structure of bourgeois politics. Lukash gives us some of the tools to begin to do that, I think. Yeah, kind of jumping right off of that, um, you're talking about the importance of kind of developing this critical understanding. And we've talked about the party as kind of in many ways a place to develop that sort of class consciousness. Um, And you talk towards the end about the importance of uh, building communities and institutions uh, that can help people kind of develop these critical theoretical tools. So I'm wondering if, you know, looking back at his theory in the 1920s, but thinking about, you know, this moment in our early 21st century, what sort of institutions do you think need to be built or cultivated to help provide a space for this sort of critical uh, political and philosophical thinking? Just a second. Okay. I think maybe to begin with, to answer this question, I'd like to sort of draw out one of the implications of the criticism of the concept of praxis and the way that Lukács uses it. So, like, for Lukács, praxis becomes the bearer of everything. And in a sense, it's almost a nihilistic position because it tends to exclude other areas of social life um, that produce meaning in their own way, that is less than praxis or more than praxis but or just different, right? So, you know, like I was I mentioned some before, but like Lukács sort of also says, oh, well, natural science, we'll, we'll get back to that after the revolution. We'll defetishize our concepts that we use to look at nature um, and, you know, we'll do science again after the revolution. He even says at one point that love has to be the ethic of communism, um, but it's systematically denied under capitalism. Nonetheless, revolutionaries must, in his words, have an inner preparedness to love, but love will only be actualized under communism. So, in a sense, he evacuates the, po- the possibility in every other part of life in order to dedicate everything towards praxis. Like it's a really sort of monological, you know, um, fanatic position. Um, you know, so if you basically, if you de-reify the concept of praxis, if you criticize the concept of praxis, you don't abolish the concept of praxis. You could still be interested in praxis. And I'd argue that you probably have a healthier relationship with the concept of praxis if you don't expect it to do everything. Um, you know, but this means you can reinstate the other areas of the world that produce meaning. You know, it means that, you know, when you go and watch a film or you read a book, you don't have to analyze it purely in terms of its politics. You know, you can appreciate it as a work of art. You know, it means philosophy no longer has to be subordinate to politics. So, you know, all of a sudden you can go and read your Kierkegaard or your Nietzsche or even your Heidegger. And yeah, you wouldn't like the fact that Heidegger is a Nazi. I mean, there is a political element to philosophers. We should criticize them as such, but it means you're not asking these people to only produce political philosophy. You can just encounter different philosophers as philosophy and you know philosophy doesn't have to be subordinate to the revolution so if you criticize this the account of of praxis that Lukács, i think that ultimately becomes a kind of nihilistic abstraction you reinstate many other parts of the world um as as capable of producing meaning simultaneously and it doesn't mean you need to be interested in all of them people need to choose what they're interested in but you know that's that's cool i think and so for my mind the vantage point that enables us to do this most rationally and coherently is speculative philosophy, Hegelian philosophy, um, precisely because it, it um, in the, you know, in, in Gillian Rose's reading, but also other contemporary academic readings, um, it maintains an awareness of the gap between our concepts and between the world that gives rise to those concepts without resorting to a kind of Kantian dualism. You know, the speculative method is, is one that, you know, gives us a vantage point that is above these kinds of debates and, and discussions, but that knows its own limitations and that, that makes a virtue of trying to grasp those limitations. Um, so that, 
um, to my mind, is the sort of the intellectual standpoint that helps us think about this. Um, you know, do, do you need to have that intellectual standpoint to practice some of this? No, I don't really think so. In terms of institutions, well, what the picture of social change I think this leads to is interesting. Um, and this is really sort of what I'm interested in researching and working on at the moment. So it means, for example, with reference to the working class, the proletariat, having a critical attitude towards our concepts does not mean that we abandon the working class or that we argue that there's some other subject-object history or that there are a multiplicity of subject-objects, what have you. I am still of the view that if you want to challenge capitalism, the working class is the only social class with the, the potential economic and political power to do so. But it means you no longer fetishise the proletariat. And it means socialists can understand that they are representing a concept of the proletariat to individuals who participate within that concept of the proletariat. So this is different. So, you know, if you think about classic social democratic theory, like Kautskyism, you know, the, or, or even Luxembourg to a degree, the argument is, well, the party is the working class. The socialist movement is synonymous with the working class. The Bolshevik argument is a ra more radical one. It's to say, no, the party represents the ideal consciousness of the class. It's the vanguard of the class. But both of these refer to the class as the bearer of historical truth and claim to represent it purely. Well, my argument is, we can never represent the proletariat purely. There'll always be a gap between our politics and the people that we're trying to represent. So acknowledge this gap and work within this gap. And this means we don't have a fetishistic attitude towards the people we're trying to organise. Um, this also, if we defetishize one model of revolution, so like the Russian revolution, or one conception of praxis, it also means we're more alive to relative forms of praxis. Um, I still think there needs to be a social, there needs to be a totalizing social transformation. But this means that not everything has to be totally subordinate to to you know, an insurrection led by a Bolshevik party. It actually means we can develop organisational forms that express the truth of our time, which means breaking with the past, which is actually the authentically Leninist thing to do. That's what Lenin did in Russia. It's just we're not in Russia anymore. Um, so, you know, to my mind, that's cool. This also means if we've, if we've created a picture of the social totality that's historical, but that sees concrete freedom as flourishing at different levels of the social totality, then we can identify that flourishing within different social institutions and fight for it, um, while also pushing towards a overarching political transformation. So what does that mean? It means, you know, it, it, you know, it may mean fighting for schools in which students and teachers have far more control over the curriculum. It may mean fighting for, you know, um, in localities for control over what's built, you know, over um, to, co to combat gentrification, you know, um, to combat inappropriate development, to build cities that, that serve all of our needs. Um, it, it could mean, you know, it could mean building up, um, you know, natural science in order to serve ecology. You know, there can be different moments within the social totality that um, make, that basically ground the flourishing of concrete human freedom. And we need to defend those. Um, and in some ways, like the picture is also more optimistic today because God, we're so much better educated and we have, and the means of communication is so much better. Um, so, you know, like we're not dealing with a tiny avant-garde minority that can understand this stuff. We're dealing with like millions of people that can start to think seriously about the way the world works. There's obviously a lot of work to be done, but you know, it's, it's a more optimistic picture. I think this also means with respect to big P politics or the, the overarching question of state and revolution, it means we can be, well, for one, we have to say there is no model derived from the past that works. The left has failed, um, but there are different things within each model that that can that we can learn. So there's, I think there's work of mourning yet to be done for the 20th century. Like we haven't, you know, it's like every Marxist is still in the shadow of the form of Trotskyism they joined when they were in uni. Like, you know, there's still so much like adherence to, to traditions which 
you know, sort of limp along in weird, but yet things are changing. Things are different. There's more of us now than there were 10 years ago. And like, we know the world is very different. So our challenge is to make our theory adequate to our present. And that's a real, that's a spirit within Lukács' philosophy praxis. Um, and you don't abandon the past to do that, but you just, you critically appropriate parts of the past in dialogue with the present. Um, this means with the question of reform and revolution, we could just be open-minded. I'm not a reformist because that means you reify the state. But God knows, if it's possible to have social transform, if it's possible to end capitalism without a civil war, that would be good because the other side has nukes now. Um, so, and, you know, it, it means like, but at the same time, it means a realism vis-a-vis the state. Like we know that it's built on, on the hegemony of bourgeois society is built on a monopoly on violence. Um, and we know from the historical examples that there's every likelihood that that would be used. So it can mean, a, you know, if we're, for example, say we're in a position, uh, you know, as the left was in Chile in 1973 with a left reformist reforming government that's quite ambitious, well, it means maybe we'll be more realist this time and we know that we'll probably will have to accept that shipment of AK-47s from Cuba. Like, you know, so I think this gives us freedom. Basically, to put it in a, in, a, in a kind of rhetorical way, at one point I think Max Weber, who was not a socialist, he was like a very classically, you know, conservative bourgeois figure, like a, a bourgeois Republican. Um, so he looks at the socialist movement and his argument to the German bourgeoisie is, why are you guys worried? These guys are inferior. They're not, they don't know how to do politics. They, you know, let them run the state and I promise you they will preserve German capitalism. And he was right. Like Max Weber was completely right. Well, we need to become better at politics than the bourgeoisie, I think, so that we can politically hegemonize society and do so in a way that's not dogmatic and authoritarian, that, you know, refuses to reify the proletariat or any one conception of Marxism, what have you. So I think the kind of Marxism that, I've arrived at it as a result of this critique is one that's much more constitutively pluralist. Um, and I call it a kind of Republican Marxism because I believe in the defense of concrete freedom within institutions. Excellent. You have given me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners a lot to think about. Um, so that brings us through kind of the main ideas of the book. And I'll stress to listeners, this is a 600 page tome that both reconstructs Lukács' theory and then does a lot of critical work uh, with it, which I think we've tried to cover both those aspects of it. But as a final question before we sign off, what, if anything, are you working on now? Ah, well, um, it's kind of, I like how these things work sometimes. I'm kind of doing what Lukács did in the 20s. Like half of my time is spent trying to build up a local branch of Jacobin magazine in Australia, um, you know, trying to... Um, you know, get together a network of writers and publish content regularly and fundraise. So, you know, we'll put together our own print edition eventually. I'm quite involved in in a party in uh, Melbourne, Victorian Socialists. So, you know, there's a, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is practical politics. Um, intellectually, um, I'm interested in... Uh, I've always sort of... I don't like to make... In the way I approach ideas and thinking, sort of, I like to build on what I've done in the past, even if that might involve big changes in my position. I don't really like jumping around. So, like, I'm interested in exploring some of the hypotheses and questions that I arrived at at the end of the book. In particular, I'm interested in exploring the possibility for a Marxist Hegelianism, not a Hegelian Marxism. Like, Lukács is a Hegelian Marxist, but when I mean Marxist Hegelianism, I basically mean Hegel's philosophy with Mar Marx's social thought. Um, and it's something, okay, so Martin Hagland, um, his book, uh, This Life, for example, I think that's that's a contribution to Marxist Hegelianism. So I'm interested in exploring some of the questions that that book has opened up, um, that my criticism of Lukács has opened up. That, to my mind, involves exploring the, the viability of a kind of Republican Marxist politics or philosophy of politics. 
And also this means the, the immediate focus for me is Gillian Rose because I think her account of um, Hegel is very, very compelling, but also uh, in her book Hegel, Contra Sociology, she calls for a reformation within Marxism. Um, and she means that in the Christian sense of the term. So you know, I'm interested in exploring the possibility for a reformation within Marxism. Yeah, you've got a lot to work with in that. So best of luck. Someone said too much. Thank you. (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, Daniel Lopez, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.